folks. This is another episode of Planet Shivers, episode 8. Thanks for listening. I just want to preface this interview with something kind of funny, which is that I had literally just rolled out of bed before doing this interview. I had slept late, was supposed to, you know, give myself some time before I called up Roy, but I had no time. And you could, uh, towards the beginning of this interview, you can hear definitely the, the sleep in my voice. I'm not sick or anything, it's just, you know, I five minutes before talking, I was in bed. Um, in this episode, Roy and I are going to be talking about lots of music stuff from record stores in the 50s and early 60s, music producing, original folk, gospel, and blues music, Greenwich Village in the early 60s, and even Roy meeting Bob Dylan on a couple of occasions. Hope you dig this interview. Roy is a cool dude, and it's great to have him tell some of his story. I will talk to you a lot. Yes. For there is nothing else. They won't let you talk to you today about cryptography. Come along quietly or not. You can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere. Some promise, make a hope. Let you bite upon it. And now, without further ado, All right, folks, welcome to the Planet Shivers podcast. I'm Albert Shivers, and today I'm joined over the phone all the way from Connecticut with Roy Hannum. How are you, Roy? Thanks for doing the show. Yes, hi, Al. Uh, good morning, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much, and uh, I'll enjoy this, I am sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to our chat as well. So I guess let's start from the beginning. Um, how how did you get started in music? Well, that uh, like I suppose most musicians, you sometimes in my case it was a family member. My mother uh, played piano. Uh, she was a housewife. Uh, I I was a kid. Real. I was born in 1947. <clears throat> so this was in the early 50s. Uh, when uh, I first started getting into music, she was very musically inclined. My father was not, and but um, she had a piano in the house, and she started to teach me a piano, which I learned a little of. But and then she sent me for lessons. But I was bored with lessons and scales and all that. I wanted to play music, not technique. So I kind of rebelled against that. And she said, "Well, you ought to play the guitar." So she got me a guitar, an expensive one. And that back then, of course, it was hard to learn how to play music because we were, although we were in New York, uh, maybe 30 miles out of New York City, we were still in a r- fairly rural suburb. And it wasn't a heck of where, a lot around. Uh, where was that? What, what yeah, town was that? Pleasantville, New York. Okay. It's about 30 miles north of New York City, Times Square. But it's small. I mean, as you go up into north of New York City, into Westchester, it's well, nowadays it's more built up, but 50 years ago, 70 years ago, it wasn't quite as that, you know, that big. So um, we, uh, it was hard to learn because there was no internet. There was no, you know, if you, and, and because you didn't have a lot of guys around, we had a small subdivision. Unless somebody who knew was playing guitar, you couldn't really, uh, you know, learn that much and that was some schools but they were more scale oriented than technique oriented so we had a limited choice and uh, even your availability of music wasn't that great 
Uh, you got some music over the radio, but that was limited. It wasn't always all the time, especially early on. The stations hadn't gone to full, the radio stations hadn't gone to any kind of full-time uh, music programming yet. You didn't have stations devoted to various genres really yet. It was coming, but it wasn't there yet. So it was sporadic, and you hear you listen music on the radio, and of course you go to the record store, mm-hmm. which of course is a great American institution, which does not exist anymore. It <laughs> barely does. I'm sorry, barely, yeah. yeah. There are a few uh, holdouts, and I, I just love them. I just love a music store, because that's where all the kids used to go. That's where we used to, that's, It was a tremendous institution, and it's gone, uh, pretty much. Um, and um, so that was part of it, and you learn a little bit about, you know, you be looking through all the stacks of 45s and, and some of the LPs later. So that's where you learn a little bit, and that's where, I, actually, I, I met a sidekick at a record store who wasn't really a guitarist, but he was just learning, but he was more of a promoter guy, and he said, gee, you know, I, you know, I like to get into this, and I was kind of new, and this was now, I was maybe 13 now, so I had been, I started to play, and he helped me, and we got a couple other guys that I started to learn a little bit from, but I was still struggling. So eventually I got a little bit better, and when I was about 14 and a half now, mm-hmm. with my guitar in hand, my buddy and I decide, well, we've heard about this place called Greenwich Village. This is now in 1961, okay? Okay. Uh, I was 14 and a half. So we didn't really know much about it because we were out in the, in the suburbs and yeah, we heard of buzz and really Greenwich Village was just kind of evolving as a mecca, you know, uh, then. It wasn't really in its heyday then. So it was just getting there. So... <laughs> He said, all right, let's, let's go down to this place called Greenwich Village. And I said, yeah, I heard about that. What do you do down there? I said to my buddy. And he said, well, they play a lot of music. I said, well, okay, let's go. So we played hooky from school. And we got on the uh, Metro North, which, well, we didn't call that that, but we, took, we could take the train, right. fortunately, right from Pleasantville into Manhattan and then the subway down. But we didn't really know where the hell we were going. So we kept, I had this guitar, and my buddy was there, and we were asking directions. We finally get down uh, to the village after a, a journey, and there's nobody there because it's in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> you know, we had this vision. There's all this stuff going on. There was nothing going on. So I'm walking around, and there's this old guy there with a broom outside a club uh, sweeping. Uh, it was about 1.32 in the afternoon. So he looks at me, and I'm looking around. He says, kid, you here to play music? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, nah, you got to go over the square. He points over to the arches. He says, go over there. That's where we all hang out in the, in the afternoon. I said, all right. <laughs> I pick up our guitar and go over there. So I walk out, and we're at the arches now. And it's a big lawn, if you ever look at the pictures. There's a lawn uh, right next to the arches. And it was a popular spot then for musicians. Okay, guys used to go over there, and just 20 of his 15 open jams, you know, just sit around in a circle. And, um, uh, you know, one guy would start to play a song, and we'd all start to try to play with him. Mm-hmm. And he would sing his song. And another guy would sing, and then the next guy would sing, and we'd all play along with his song. 
And we just go right around. You know, there's no, no rules, no nothing. Nobody knew each other really. We got to know first names, but not much more. There were some older guys. We called them older guys. They were in their early 20s. They were the old men of the groups. We were mostly kids. I was one of the younger ones. But uh, anyway, so we had an interesting day that day. It was my first day there. So I'm um, sitting there, and um, we're in this group, and uh, there's one guy uh, who's in two, two spots from me, uh, says, uh, now, he says, I'm Bob, and I got a song uh, that uh, I, I heard from uh, Rick Van Schmidt in Boston. I don't know. It's <laughs> didn't to me. So he just starts playing a song. And, he, and what he was playing was Baby Let Me Follow You Down. And so it was a nice song, and it was easy to play, and I was only two spots from him. So we started, I got a little harmony with him on the vocal, and, you know, everybody's playing with him. But he could hear me more than anybody else, or most of them. But and anyway, so we started to get into it a little bit. I like the song, and okay, next song, nothing much. You know, it's just one of those things. So we were playing there for the afternoon, so then somebody comes up and says, Gee, there's, a, there's an open mic night tonight mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, at the bitter end. So he says, you got to go, you got to go. So my buddy says, yeah, we got to go. But it wasn't until like 9 o'clock. Now, remember, there was no cell phones then, no nothing. We had played hooky from school. I didn't dare call home. And, you know, I would have faced all sorts of music on this fiasco. <laughs> so uh, I said, all right, how will I I'll take the heat tomorrow. So we go over to this open mic. And, of course, we were naive. And uh, there was well, maybe 15 guys waiting to play. There was a little line there or something. And you got, the other thing is it wasn't really, really open mic down there in those days. The uh, You had to kind of know somebody to, who was one of the factotums in order to get up there. And they would give you a couple of songs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you, if you were just walking in off the street, chances are you wouldn't play. You know, they wouldn't let you play. Uh, so I'm sitting there, and it's, the line is moving like dead slow. A couple of guys, he turns away. This is taking forever. So I said to my buddy, we got to get home. You know, it's like 10 o'clock, and we still have to take the train. So anyway, by total serendipity, up the street comes this guy, Bob, who I had, been sat next to a few hours before. And he looks at me, he says, aren't you the guy down there played with me tonight? He says, yeah, yeah, I was in the whole group. He says, yeah, yeah. He says, you looking to play here? I said, yeah. He says, come with me. <laughs> this is truly incredible. Mm -hmm. He just goes right up to the guy. He says, well, I'll let this guy up there for a couple. So the guy, he just says, oh, go right up now. <laughs> Without any, just suddenly, on his little study, there wasn't, this was, the club had only been opened, I think, three months at the time. They had opened in, I think, around February of 61, and then this was like May, okay? Mm -hmm. So they were just getting this thing going, and they were hopefully, you know, uh, building on tourist trade, yet they wanted the, the, the village flavor. So that's why they liked us long-haired musician guys, because we were the flavor, and <laughs> customers hopefully would pay money to to enjoy the environment. That was their cell, anyway. But it was still embryonic, you know. They were just getting going. So anyway, uh, so anyway, this guy, Bob, gets me up there, and I played a couple of songs, and okay. So then he comes up right at the end of it when I've done my tune. Do you, do you recall which songs you played? Uh, my own songs? 
I played two I wrote, actually. Um, it Well, actually, no, one was a cover. Um, I think I did one by a uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott song. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, that was, boy, you're testing my memory now. <laughs> I did Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and I played uh, San Francisco Bay Blues. It turned okay. out that, well, to make a, I'm skip ahead, but I don't want to take too long to tell a story, but at the end, this guy Bob comes up to me and says, hey, kid, you're pretty good, keep strumming, you know, you may get somewhere. I said, geez, thanks a lot, thanks for all the help. He said, I said, your name is Bob? And he said, yeah, my name is Bob, you know. He says, well, I'm Roy, I'm Roy Hannum, you know. He didn't say tell me his last name at all. Hmm. So he just said, I'm Bob. Okay, Bob, I'll see you around. He says, yeah, come down sometime, hang out at the park. We were there, too. So, okay, not, nothing much. I didn't even know who the heck he was. But he said, that's a great song, by the way, you played up there. I like, uh, you know, I know uh, Ramblin' Jack. He said, you know Ramblin' Jack? I said, yeah. He says, yeah. <laughs> I said, wow. I, I, to myself, I said, this guy's somebody that I don't know who he is. But actually, he hadn't even been in New York that long. He had only arrived in New York uh four or five months before that. And he still really was using Zimmerman, sometimes in Dylan, but anyway, I didn't know a thing about him and nobody did at that moment. Mm -hmm. So anyway, <laughs> so he says, so that was it. So I left and everything, of course I got home, I got my rear end in, in jail for like a year. My father was went nuts to find I skipped school to go play music with the, with the bums and the hippies, you know, and all this good stuff. So I got barred. I didn't go back for a long time, so he wouldn't let me go back. So anyway, the, the real interesting part of the story is about, this was maybe January of the following year. Uh, I had been in May of 61. It's got to be like January, February 62. I'm sitting up in Pleasantville listening to the radio, and I hear this guy come on and sing, Baby, Let Me Follow You Down. I said, I just pick right up. I said, that's, that's Bob. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it turned out, in the meantime, I think in November of that year, he had gotten in with Columbia, and he got, he was always doing something, but he got in, he got his deal. He issued his first album, and Baby Let You, Let Me Follow You Down, is on his first album. And I said, son of a gun. I said, it was, <laughs> well, what a small world. So that was my, 15 seconds of, of claim to fame. Uh, <laughs> I actually never saw him again in, uh, live, you know, and it's just interesting who you would run into down there mm -hmm. at that period of time because uh, everybody, with, a lot of guys were totally unknown. Some guys who really became rather well-known came out of those little jams. And then, then the bitter end used to have, um, not, not the bitter end, bottom line, used to have a hootenanny. But they still have an ad somewhere in my archives. It's uh, now I played at that hootenanny. Um, it, it was they usually get one guy that was known a little bit, and then they would say, and twenty other great musicians. What's <laughs> one of the other twenty <laughs> great musicians so unnamed? Uh, and it was just a pickup, and they would they would charge in not much, maybe fifty cents a dollar or something for this cover charge, and we didn't get paid at all. But uh, it was great because you got to meet a lot of some people, nodding acquaintances and stuff. And 
and it was a lot of fun. But yeah, the hoot nannies that, that you can check. I, I, I got to get that for the Village Voice. It's in the Village Voice, and they used to run those ads for a couple of a few months, and eventually the club got more and more notoriety, and the village started taking off. But uh, that was one of the my first experiences down there. Uh, that was really some day. Let me put it that way. Which, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, then later on, as I got a little older and I got a little more ability, I would go back down uh, periodically. Um, and I knew, just would, uh, from nodding some of the guys, I, uh, nodding trains, Dave Von Rock used to hang out down there all the time. And he was a guy that, um, I don't know, if a lot of guys know him, but uh, the musicians know him. Uh, he's, um, he, was quite a guy. He never really made it super big, but he's he did a lot of songs. He played some with people and Mary a few times, and sung with them. And uh, he's got a couple of really good stuff. I, I ran it to him, and um, and of course Ramblin' Jack Elliott would appear once in a while. And mm. I met him at a bar once. Just he had just played, and I was going to play a number or something. Just not you know. Again, a lot of this was pickup open mic stuff, and he was, you know, I said, gee, that's pretty good, you know, I knew who he was, but he didn't know who I was, so I said, yeah, I'm a big fan, he was, he said, oh, kid, okay, keep going with it, kid, so I met him just that way, but you'd meet all these people down there, hmm. and um, just, it was an amazing time, it really was, uh, as it evolved, of course, then, more and more clubs opened, and there was a number of them down there, actually, really, the village, Music-wise, really, really started to grow a little bit in the late, late 50s, but there wasn't as much then as there was by the early 60s, and of course by the mid and late 60s it became rather, rather thriving. Mm -hmm. um, and then jazz came out, uh, started coming, there was some jazz clubs that started springing up, and then of course the whole genre started to change. We were folk way back uh, in 62, 61, but it started getting into more of the blues and as well as folk, still folk, but there was some blues more. Uh, you got a little more, a little more rock coming in too, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it was gradual and, and then you eventually had all those genres down there. You could go down to. Did you ever but, visit any of the jazz clubs? Uh, I'm trying to remember. There was one I think called. That wasn't in a village, so it was just outside the village. Fat Tuesdays, I think it was. I'm trying to remember. I was not primarily jazz, but I did get into it a bit when I first got exposed to it. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the names of the clubs down there. There was a few jazz clubs uh, that that sprung up. Oh God, I can't recall now, but. Um, That's fine. Anyway, the um, but that different definitely the jazz got a big push in the United States from its entree into the village. I think that helped it a lot, mm -hmm. and uh, to uh, create awareness of the medium too. So um, and uh, uh, and of course blues blues was always around, but I think it, blues started to become changed. Uh, in other words. In the 50s, if you if you look back at the song, I don't know if you know, 
Denied Irene. Now, the song Denied Irene. Is, yes, I do. Yeah. Was probably it was written by Lead Belly mm-hmm. in the '30s, and he was black and he was a prisoner, but he uh, in a uh, farm in uh, Louisiana. But he wrote the song and he would perform over many years. But of course, he had the problem with black labels, then. and he couldn't get anything, even though he was dealing with Alan Lomax. Uh, he worked for Alan Lomax for a while too. Was a big producer and did a lot of stuff in that. Yeah, I have area. a few um, of of the Alan Lomax compilations on CD, like the Prison recordings and um, some of his Lead Belly recordings, also. You you have them or you or you? I have them on, on CD. Oh yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Lomax's story was, was well. That's another interview for what he did. All of this, all that stuff. It was a lot of back and forth. But going to Lebel, the reason why I bring it up because it relates to the village, the um, the song itself would have to go out on a black label. So apparently Pete Seeger came along, is what I understand the story to be, and offered to take Lead Belly's song and and do it with the Weavers when they were just they were just moving up, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was actually the Weavers that issued and played that song and made it world famous. It was one of the top selling songs in nineteen fifty, if you look at the worldwide charts. It was amazingly successful song. And their uh, sales were amazing. But then it became very popular. But the thing is that from people like Seeger and others, you were uh, you were bringing in uh, more of the blues element is what was happening. Mm-hmm. Once that started to occur, blues started to fall more into the into the uh, mainstream genre more and more because it was pretty much always considered uh, a separate, um, you know, black oriented type of genre. But I think the, and the village helped that a lot. Because you could take guys, they would take guys and, uh, you know, uh, sing their songs. Uh, and then when the Stones got into the blues, uh, they came, the British invasion, I call it. Uh, Stones did a lot of old stuff. Uh, Robert Johnson uh, does Love in Vain. That was a uh, Robert Johnson song that the Stones sang. Uh, and they got a couple of others, too, that they did uh, that resurrected. Uh, some interest in blues. So it was all a, a flow, and it was amazing. I think one of the key factors in Amer- growth of American music, you can point to Greenwich Village in the 60s as a major uh, catalyst, and, and and later too, a little bit later too, uh, and to really consolidate a lot of different things and create awareness of the of the genres uh and it was good it was really a fantastic mm-hmm. time yeah. so would you say uh, in your time um as a young man down there would you say that greenwich village um pulled in at that time the early 60s pulled in a lot of tourism or was it mostly like more local people who were going um, it was an evolution uh, originally it, be- it was more local based uh you know Clubs very small before the heyday it started to really pick up. the The business model, like of the Bitter End, was to make it a tourist oriented club with authentic, an authentic genre. That's what I understand they were trying to do mm-hmm. uh, at the time, and some of the other clubs too. And eventually, they did succeed in that. They got 
a mainstream groups, and they, of course, they got some pretty. Uh, some of the guys who really played on there, like Dylan and others, came back, and they were all famous by then, and a lot of other guys. And of course, it became a uh, rather famous and tourist-oriented. Well, I say tourist, but it was a very mainstream uh, place later on, and uh, it still is. Um, it's still there, believe it or not. And uh, one of my good friends, uh, 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 Rob. Uh, uh, and Asha plays down there, and sometimes they have stuff. Stuff, but they, they they're still thriving down there. It's amazing, and it's still cold. <laughs> the bitter end. So it's still there. So, um, but um, uh, anyway, uh, I'm sorry. So, um, yeah, you were asking me about uh, the. Um, I kind of diverged there, Al. That's okay. <laughs> you know me. <laughs> That's no problem. Would um what was um the the you know, the climate like down there was um were these clubs like really happening in the early sixties? Well, yes and no. Uh, early on, it's funny. Everybody used to think there was a big drug culture down there in the early sixties, and there really wasn't that much of it. The, the, the pot came in a little bit later, believe it or not, in big in droves. I'm talking about sure you could get marijuana down there even mm-hmm. in the early '60s, but it wasn't quite as hit. So the the culture wasn't yet into the acid type, heavy type. There was nothing, nothing of that. I didn't see any anyway. I mean, I'm sure it existed, but it wasn't common. It, it was it, a lot of these were coffee clubs. Because they couldn't get liquor licenses easily in New York. Okay. So, uh, um, you know, it was a mixed bag. Uh, it's hard to make a coffee house, even though it's nice, a, a happening place. Although, eventually, they, they did. All of them, a lot of them down there, be, became pretty happening in that sense. And uh, But that took a while. You didn't get that right away. Uh, and it was all growth, you know, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. It, it got bigger and bigger. Was, of course, anybody, if you were a musician then, you were young, presumably. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had long hair and nobody liked you. You know, that was the whole time. And there was a lot of cultural animosity between right. the younger generation and the older. Um, almost like today, nothing changes really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the new guys wanted to throw out all those old guys and run it all themselves. God, we said the same things 60 years ago. Same thing. So anyway, we can do better. So uh, anyway, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the culture was pretty good. There were a lot of cause oriented folk. Folk music tended towards uh, message music. You know, uh, most of it did, and uh, it was highly surrounding. Uh, and then, of course, it evolved into folk music around. Vietnam War was started to begin, but even Vietnam War hadn't really taken off in '62 that much yet. That didn't hit its heyday until quite some time later, five, seven years later. It started mm-hmm. to really get to be an issue, but it wasn't then when I first got down there. It wasn't that big a deal, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And um, uh, but um, uh, so the culture was good. Uh, it was relatively, relatively sane, if you want to call it that, but still wild. I mean, it, it wasn't wasn't your average uh, 
go to school, I'd hop. Right. What, what was considered I mean? what was considered wild about it at the time? Well, I guess the freedom. You were starting to look at more like things like free love and yeah, there was more experimentation starting in on the pot. Eventually, slowly came in, and that made it all. See, because these places couldn't have liquor licenses. All all guys would bring in. You could bring in liquor. If you had a bottle with you, you could bring it in yourself. But a lot of people didn't know that, and a lot of people didn't do that. But there wasn't. it was drinking, but even though it was unlicensed, there was some of that. And, uh, and some, you know, some early on uh, experimentation. Pot got bigger each year and went on. It got more and more and more. But basically, it was pretty much of a mellow. My experience was more mellow-oriented crowd than acid-type free crowd that eventually some of it came into. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 the culture changed uh, as in that I saw, anyway, over time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it had a lot to do with the, you know, the well, both culture, the culture of what was going on, and then the introduction of other drugs, acid, and stuff like that, which a lot of people got into, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I guess they considered fortunately, but I don't, whatever. Let's not go down that road, but uh, the... Uh, and uh, so, uh, so when so but, you you were in Greenwich Village, and um, so how did that affect your your musical journey after that, like the, for the remainder of um, as you progressed as a musician? Big time, big time, because that was really my first introduction to true professional play. You know, musicians mixing with them and learning from them. And that was always the key. It's hard to learn back then. You had to go someplace to learn music. Nowadays, you can learn a lot by sitting home. <laughs> Believe it or not, too, there's all sorts of stuff you can do for the internet. I wouldn't say it's as good as live playing to learn, but still, it, it, you can go a lot farther than you ever could before. So you, we always just had to go someplace. And for me, going to the village was truly eye-opening. Uh, you heard a lot of things, you're exposed to a lot of stuff. And um, that never has left me. Uh, I'm still basically, with all the music I do, I still at my roots like that old Woody Guthrie, uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott uh, style that flows in through Dylan too and beyond. Uh, that was always my, you know, the single songer writer is me. I've, I've done other musical, lots of different types and with plenty of other guys and produced other stuff, but that to me has always been a core for me. That and a bit of the blues too. Those have always been, and that nurtured there. That, that definitely mm-hmm. nurtured there. Who, uh, are a few, who are a few of um, your favorite blues musicians? Well, I, in looking at back, the, the, you know, the modern blues musicians are a little bit different than the older uh, classical guys. Definitely, definitely. No, I'm saying they definitely are. And the the style I, let me just answer it this way, the style I adhered to was more, first of all, I was unique because I could never have the patience. Most singer-songwriters, although some are different, do not... uh, do well with a lot of technique and trying to sing at the same time. There are some that do it. There are some that do it. They can really 
do an awful lot and sing over at the same time. I found with me and a lot of others, playing rhythm and singing are about all you can really do real well. Most lead guys, uh, I find, and this is an informal study, but if you ask, you look at most lead guitarists, very few of them sing. Very few. There are some, but most of them are not vocalists because they're so into their keyboard, their uh, their 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 uh, uh, frets and stuff, and where they're going. They don't. They lose concentration on trying to get into something else, and that's just my own personal opinion. But if you look, you won't see very many lead guitarists. Too many uh, that are, are good vocalists. They tend to be more guitarists, you know, and that's what they do. So when you put together the rhythm, the vocal, and a lead lead guy, that's the way I've always try to do it. Or I can I can come into a lead rhythm with some strumming and some various stuff. Other guys finger pick. That's very good. That gives you a little more flavor, but uh, you know me, um, I never had the patience <laughs> for that, and it takes a lot to learn to finger paint uh, and to use it a lot, and yet it's very good technique too. It is very good, mm. but um, so my style is basically singer songwriter myself. Okay, mm. and I write I write a lot of songs, and uh, then we've got into gospel too. I produced a bunch of gospel videos, uh, which were unique. And how did the heck did I get into gospel? That was another interesting story. How did you? Uh, <laughs> I was sitting at home one day. Hey, yeah, gospel is close. To, this is a lot of bluesy stuff in gospel, and I'm basically a blues folk guy. So you know, I always kind of like some of the gospel stuff. I do, and but I never really played that much of it, you know, in any way. So one guy at night, one guy calls me up, and apparently he, he was playing in this Bible study group locally, and the, this guitarist got sick, and he needed a guy to play guitar, and he and I played before, sometimes different things. So he says, geez, you got to come down and help me out tonight. I said, why? <laughs> what are you playing? I don't know what we're doing. He said, no, 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 don't worry about it. Simple chords, simple chords, you got to love me. I said, all right, all right. So I got down there. And geez, you know, we did a lot of songs, and I said, this is pretty nice, you know, and everybody's singing, and I'm playing, I'm doing my rhythm, and it's easy, and he's, he's vocalizing, I'm vocalizing with him. I said, yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> Just like that, this is like five years ago. So I said, geez, and then all of a sudden, I'm sitting on one night, and I'm saying, geez, you know, I get this lightning bolt of a song I'm going to do a hymn. Uh, it's called How Many Miles to Heaven's Door. And I said, yeah, so I wrote the song. It's a gospel song. We made a video of it, and it's been pretty well received. And uh, I have a couple of other videos that we did, uh, more along traditional uh, gospel stuff. Uh, Closer Walk With Thee is another good one you'll see on my stuff. That's a video, and we did um, some stuff there for that. That came out over good. And then we also did um, In the Garden, which is another classic uh, old time, you know, uh, and, but we spiced them up a little bit and I enjoyed it. I, I, I've gotten less now in a little slightly different directions again, but I still like Oswald. Uh, I still do. Hmm. And, um, but basically most of my work is still along the blues, folk, even just some Southern rock too, a bit of that too. Classic rock is always hmm. big.
what musically are you up to now? Well, let me talk, let me address that in a kind of an indirect way, Al, if I okay. could. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, what has happened is a major dislocation, I would call it, in the music industry. Of course, about 10 years ago, we were a little longer, we started to have the digital revolution where music was widely posted and available, okay, on the internet. Right. Up until then, just to give everybody a perspective, sales of records and CDs in 2000, I guess it was around three, were nationwide, or I don't know if it's nationwide or international, were $26 billion of actual CDs and physical product were sold, vinyl, at record stores and through, you know, whatever. $26 billion. Now, last year, that number of sales, direct sales, and now we're including digital download sales as well. Digital download sales, physical shipping of CDs like from Amazon or stuff like that, or anywhere else you might find a buy one. They've plummeted. That whole market has plummeted now to $6.2 billion in sales. Now, that's anemic. That is from 22 to 6. Where it's picked up is, is streaming. And nowadays, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, I say fortunately or unfortunately, because it's unfortunate for the musicians, but it's good for the public. Everybody's gotten used to listening to their music with streaming. You know, they don't want to pay for music anymore. There's almost an issue of, well, there's so much up to, out there, why pay for it? You know, it, it's kind of that way. And now with everybody pretty much having high-speed data and high-speed internet in homes or where they can go to work on limited data plans at high-speed, you can pretty much listen to anything anywhere you want. And why have CDs? And it makes sense. And also why buy digital downloads? The industry thought that the digital download was going to be the great, way this was going to replace everything because it was going to be cheaper than buying an album or a CD. And it is. <laughs> you know, it's a lot right. cheaper. Yeah. But nobody's buying it. That's the problem. Because you could, everybody else has given it away, quote unquote, for free. Now, what do I mean for free? Well, you can go to YouTube and get a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff posted there for free. You can go... Uh, and not pay and see a lot of music on a lot of platforms, Spotify, others. Reverb Nation is free if you want to go there. Now, in Reverb Nation, you're not going to see top guys, but you'll see all the newcomers. But you go to places like Amazon. If you have a Prime account, you're automatically able to look at all their uh, Prime Music stuff, which is huge. Uh, Apple charges you something, but those, those are starting to reduce. There's a lot of downward pressure on this thing with paying a, a platform a lot of money. I think you're going to find that disappear. Uh, I think it's, it's pressure. Now, more and more platforms are lowering, not upping, because they can't get the demand. But that's just my opinion. I, I don't know that for an absolute fact. But I've been seeing certain certain services like Tidal are, are starting to come down. They're offering all sorts of promotions, and that's another platform. Uh, that's not always, but, you know, you can see this start to happen. And more platforms are opening up. That's what's starting to happen. You're not going to have just a, a few. The reason why they're opening up is there's a vibrant bridge. The streaming business has just gone blockbuster. So plenty of people are looking and watching music. 
And it's great for the platforms because the platforms charge advertisers. And advertisers love music because there's a lot of repeat business in music. People go back and back and back. Probably more than almost anything else you can think of to listen. And uh, so they constantly get a chance to, to have their little ads in there. And um, so they're doing fine. The problem is, how does the musician fit into this to survive? Because right. now the product sales are pretty much gone. Uh, and now what you have left is the platforms do pay a, what they call a monetization fee if you qualify to you as a musician based to a degree on how many hits you actually receive on their platform. But it's very anemically small. And because musicians tend to be individuals spread out all over the place and they have no concentration of bargaining power. So the, the monetization splits now are very anemic. And so revenues on the platforms are good from advertising, but payouts to musicians are anemic. And that is going to be the critical mass that's got to break. What I see happening is is musicians forming buying groups, co-op groups, to get together. And instead of them having 20,000 hits a year, 30,000 hits a year apiece, they're going to have millions of hits combined. And then you're going to go to a platform and say, look, all our members are going to go over here. Because pretty much a musician, when he posts anywhere on social media, you can drive anybody to any site you want. Mm -hmm. If I post up on Reverb, they'll all go to Reverb. I mean, it just hit the link. So the musician can't control in his promotion where the platform that the person goes to. Of course, when the, platform, when the person goes to that platform, then they get subjected to the advertising that's on that platform. So if you're big enough and you're strong enough as a buying group, then I think you can start to renegotiate these splits. And that's what I think hopefully will happen. I'm a little bit involved in that, but it's a huge undertaking, and I'm getting too old. But it is what needs to be done. There's no question about it, Al, mm -hmm. uh, because there's no other way to go. Uh, really, local playing local gigs and affairs is always there, but you know they're spotty. They're harder to get. A lot of places don't have live as much as they used to. It, you know, it's a tough road uh, economically if you want to be a musician right now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what's going to change it. I think the good news is there's lots of streams. The bad news is there's got to be a group away from which musicians can organize to get a little bit more of that pie. And I think they deserve it. I really do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know? So there, there you go. That's my two-minute two, two minute <laughs> prognosis <laughs> on, on the future. So, um, But uh, anyway, getting back to me, I'm starting to gear product now more towards monetization and views, unfortunately, than I have, you know, selling it. And that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, because... Uh, you want to get more music out there that it's going to attract, if you're playing to make some economics. I still do most of my music. I don't care what we earn on it. I mean, it's a passion for me. Most musicians are like that, by the way. As long as you can make a living, I mean, nobody's going to kick about it. It's when it when you try to go into this full-time, which you really need full-time musicians. You know, part-time guys, I did it for years. You know, it's just not the same. You're not in, in, immersed in it. And for a full-time musician, yeah, you have to make some money to live. 
And I, I think that's what's got to shake out or else we won't have too many anymore. And um, uh, that would be unfortunate, you know, for, I think, everybody. But anyway, there are ways to attack that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they haven't come yet. So it's kind of like hell in the hallway time until this all gets shaken out, you know. But I am changing my a little bit where I'm going direction that way and looking more towards um, promulgation of uh, internet, I, Twitter, Facebook, all that. We're promoting more, largely just to create awareness. And uh, some of the groups I'm in, and a few of my founded um, musicians groups, we, we're trying to do some of that too. So are you, uh, are you working so, on not only you're working on not only promoting yourself, but you promote other musicians as well? Other musicians as well, yes, that's okay. exactly true. Um, uh, and the and where where I'm trying to go is is that if we're looking at all the views now, I really think that what you're going to find is we're going to re- get into a lot more. Musicians are going to get into a lot more reposting of each other's work. In other words, I got three thousand, five thousand friends on my site, so I'm going to post your stuff and say it's great, no, not a nice song or something. And then a lot of my friends will look at it, and as long as they go to this and just take a peek for at least a short time, you'll a reasonable time, you'll, you'll get a view out of that. And I think that's also the way it is going to go. Uh, cross-promotion that way among artists, uh, that can help increase views. But if the views aren't paid too much, you still have the main problem is, you know, what is it? going to mean and that's what's got to change so uh, yes to answer your question though i'm totally committed to helping promulgate uh for everybody's benefit musicians works uh, and get as much of it out there on the social media as we can Um, so and i think that's an important thing to do i think at least decent it's a tool you know and uh so um so but, uh, we're um we're getting down to the end of our time slot, but I do want to bring it back all the way back um to the beginning for for a second. We were t- sure. just and we were just talking about records and record sales. So you mentioned that when you were younger, you you know the hangout was the record store. Right. And um, what kind of records and forty fives were you buying back then? Who were you a fan of? Myself, oh, well, I liked a lot of guys. Dion was a big one. Um, I liked the Platters. Uh, they were they sang well. I mean, there yeah, no, so I'm, many. I'm a I'm a big Platters fan, actually. Yep. Yeah. Oh uh, God, there's so many down there. I bought a lot of some folk too. Uh, I like Peter Paul and Mary a lot. They they were always very rhythmic, uh, and um, all sorts of guys. You know, the, the, there was a lot of uh, duop back then. Right. And some of that was really good, you know. Um, the Everly Brothers were good. In fact, I just did some covers of the Everly Brothers. I did covers uh, from some. Um, oh, Clarence Frogman Henry. Yeah, he did a. <laughs> yeah, I, I pulled out a couple yeah. of his old timers. I ain't got and, no home. Uh, that was. I a... don't know why I love you, but I do. That's a right. classic song. And you only uh, heard the one you love. I did those two. They're up on my uh, a reverb site. Mm-hmm. And just me and my guitar, we did them. And uh, it was funny. But, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff was always big. And then, of course, you always look at what's hot on the Billboard chart. Right. And, and, and of course, kids would talk about it. You know, you would all be there on Saturday afternoon and for an hour or so, and you'd be chatting and looking, and this was hot and that was bad. And it was interesting, really interesting. Uh, 
what you would come up with. I just, uh, uh, Ricky Nelson I liked a lot. I thought he was an excellent guy. In fact, I do Lonesome Town. Uh, I do a cover of his on one of the reverb sites. My Roy Hannum reverb site. But uh, I always used to like his stuff. Elvis's ballads, I loved Elvis, uh, his ballads. I, I wasn't as wild about his fast stuff as I was his ballads. Right. But uh, um, he was tremendous. There was a whole bunch of them down there at that time period uh, mm-hmm. that would come out. And uh, but the way you'd learn about it is somebody'd say something to you. This is good, you know. I bought right. this last week, and uh, okay, I'll buy it, you know. And we would buy a couple of forty-fives, uh, maybe. Our allowances were tight, but you could buy something maybe a mm-hmm. week uh, if you were, you know watch your pennies and you would take it home and then you'd have your uh, phonograph and you'd listen to it <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully enjoy it you know but um, but that was that was a key spot that was a key key spot and it's no longer around two major record stores in the city in New York just closed yes um, well, and of... I think Borders closed a lot of stores they're not they don't have that format too much anymore. In fact, books are hard too. You know, they're not doing so well on books either. Yeah, so books and records is tough go. No, that's <laughs> true. In the bricks and mortar book business. Well, Roy, we're gonna wrap up now, but it was so cool to have you on here and um, share some of your experiences. And I'm sure that we could fill a whole a second episode with with more conversation, and and we'll have to do that. Much. I really enjoyed talking. Once you get an old guy talking about reminiscing, you know, you can't <laughs> shut him up, you know. So there's plenty more packed in here somewhere. So all you got to do is unlock the door, <laughs> and I'm all yours. Okay, okay well, we'll have to do a part two. All righty. That sounds good to me. All right. Okay. Thanks, Thanks again, so Roy. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Planet Shivers podcast. This production and others can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and archives.org. It can also be found with video content on the Albert Shivers YouTube channel. You can find even more content on Facebook at Albert Shivers Visual Artist and on Instagram at Albert Shivers. You can find Isaac Wilson's work on Instagram at when in Zen. That's when underscore in underscore Zen. Thank you again for listening and don't forget to like and subscribe.